Well, we turn now to consider one of those uh, great prayers of the Old Testament. This is part of the series that we're running in the evenings during the summer months of uh, passages of prayer from the Bible and what we can learn from them. Uh, Before we actually look at the prayer itself, I thought it would be helpful just to have a little quick um, lesson on the context in which Nehemiah lived and uh, the, the timeline, you know, it can sometimes be quite confusing. Sometimes you read that Nehemiah uh, was the one who was responsible for building the temple and other times you hear that uh, he was, um, you know, the, the one who uh, lived close to the time of Esther. We just have, sometimes it helps to have a little bit of context so that we can put it all into uh, its proper uh, historical uh, box, as it were. So let's have a very quickly do that. And I want to start away back with King David. King David reigned about the year 1000. We could go further back to Abraham. That was probably 2000. He was as far before Christ as we are after Christ, but let's not go that far back. Let's start with King David. About 1000 BC he reigned. Jerusalem was destroyed in 586. So what's that? 424 years later? There was a Davidic monarchy. God had made a covenant with David that there would always be a Davidic king on the throne. And That was fulfilled with the human Davidic king right up until 586 when Nebuchadnezzar wiped away many of the hopes and aspirations of the Jewish people and destroyed Jerusalem by fire. And worse still, he destroyed the temple. About 536-539, the uh, Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. And Cyrus, who's mentioned in the book of Isaiah, Cyrus, the Persian, had an entirely different way to treat people from other nations. I suppose you could call it a bit like devolved government. He couldn't see the reason for keeping captives, as Nebuchadnezzar had done for keeping people away from their own land. He thought, let them go back and build their temples and live there, and be at peace with me. And so, uh, his great declaration is mentioned in the Bible. It's also mentioned in the Cyrus Cylinder, uh, which um, I think you can still see in the British Museum, if you're that direction. The Cyrus Cylinder declared, what the Bible declares, that Cyrus allowed the people, uh, the Jews, to go back to Jerusalem, and many other peoples as well. They could return home. And there was great rejoicing, They thought, this was it, we're going back to the old days, uh, the great days of King David once again. But it didn't work like that. They went back probably around about 538, and uh, the man who seemed to be in charge was Zerubbabel. And he and others laid the foundation for the temple. And nearly 20 years later, 
because of opposition. There were a lot of people who did not want Jerusalem to prosper, did not want it to be secure, did not want a temple there. So by 520, there was still no temple. And that's what they went home to build, really. So it was a bit of a shock that by 520, nothing had happened. God sent two prophets Haggai and Zechariah, and they told the people to waken up to the fact that God needed them to be a witness for him in Jerusalem, and they should, in spite of the opposition, build the temple again. And so the temple was completed in 516. Then Queen Esther probably came about 480. Still no Nehemiah. He came much later than that. First of all, you had Ezra in 458 and then Nehemiah in 445. That helps to put it in context that uh, Nehemiah lived about 565 years after the reign of King David. But he was still part of that people of God who had a vision for what God was doing. So, in the chapter that we read, Nehemiah hears news from Jerusalem. Hananiah, one of my brothers, that could have been a, a term for people that he knew well, or it could be his actual brothers, came with certain men from Judah. That was 800 miles away. Quite a long journey. So we don't know what they were doing there, but it was obviously a journey they had to take, not a journey you took for a picnic. You know what I mean? It's a 800 miles in those days was quite some distance. So they had come 800 miles and uh, Nehemiah and others were very anxious to hear, well, what did you see there? What was it like in Jerusalem? Ezra had gone back a few years earlier. People had uh, escaped from the uh, captivity. They were back in Jerusalem. What was it like there? Nehemiah was dying to hear. But the news was not good. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. These were the, the people that God had called to be his people. And yet it didn't look like that. That's not how they should have looked in disgrace and in trouble. You know, sometimes you see people that uh, don't quite live up to what the, your expectation is. Recently I was on a, f a plane waiting for the passengers to all get on board so we could take off. And uh, there was a blockage in the aisle, so I watched the people as they came past. And one man had... Uh, he was very smartly dressed indeed, and he had a, a lapel badge which said optician in very big letters, optician. And I had plenty of time to read the rest. And underneath it, it said specialist in, um, what do you call the lens? Contact lenses. The only thing that surprised me was that he was wearing glasses. Uh, there may be a good reason for that, but you know, sometimes people just don't quite uh, size up to what you would expect. And so um, th that was the case of the Jews. They were the people of God, and yet 
they were in great disgrace. And it looked to many of them as if God was doing nothing. And you know, there's some times in life when the people of God go through times like that, when it's really hard. And sometimes, sadly, people feel God is doing nothing. But if you notice this little thing in the Bible, that every time it looks as if God is doing nothing, he is doing his greatest works. You know, at the time of the Exodus, when the babies were being thrown in the river and people thought God's doing nothing, he was raising up Moses. At this time, when it looked as if God was doing nothing, he was raising up Nehemiah. And of course, on the cross of Calvary, you must admit, it looked as if God was doing nothing, didn't it? And yet, at that time, he was saving the world from their sins. He was making a way back to himself eternally. So, uh, never feel uh, that God is doing nothing because those are the times he really will surprise you. Those are the times he's working away in ways that we might not understand. Now, these people shared this news, and they had no idea that sharing this news would lead to Nehemiah's prayer and to his help in rebuilding Jerusalem. They did not know that their honest report was the beginning of something great. They were part of God's great plan to restore security to Jerusalem, and they didn't know it. They were just telling what had happened on their journeys, and yet they were part of something great. You know, it's good as Christians not to let this slip over us, to remember that even in our day-to-day lives, we are part of the greatest plan that was ever made, the plan of salvation. It's good to remember that we are part of something big, that we are the people of the living God, part of his great plan to bring his church from all over the globe and together to take us to be with himself, a people cleansed by sin because of what he has done for us. So never think that we're nothing or not important. We're part of his great plan. And, these, and, and also remember that every time we say something, every time we do something, we are his people, we are his ambassadors, and we might feel that our bit's not important. I know people who very often feel that. They just feel, well, you know, I just don't have any part to play anymore. Well, these men didn't realize the part they were playing. And every every time a Christian speaks, we must remember that the Holy Spirit lives within us. And we must expect that maybe something that you think doesn't matter at all can make a big difference. That maybe somebody that you have encouraged, boy, you've changed their whole outlook. Just simple living for God. You don't have to be at the front preaching to make a difference for God. We belong to him, and we should expect that he's speaking through the words that we speak. So these men had no idea 
when they said, oh, it was awful, it was an awful visit, it was terribly depressing. They had no idea that by saying that, they were starting to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They were part of the plan. Uh, Corrie ten Boom said, every experience God gives us, every person he puts into our lives, is the perfect preparation for a future only he can see. Isn't that lovely? That's a, a great vision to have, that every one of us, whatever we're doing, we're part of God's plan for others. There, were very, there would have been very different reactions to their news that everything in Jerusalem was terrible. Uh, most people, I am sure, uh, in Babylon and in Susa, the palace, wherever they heard this news, most people would react with sorrow and say, how sad it is. Many would be upset. And many would also feel totally helpless and think, yeah, that's horrible, but there's nothing we can do about it. But there was one man who took a different approach. He prayed. There is, I believe, a painting in the Louvre that illustrates these different reactions. It's a painting by uh, a famous French artist called Theodore Jericho, and uh, it's about a shipwreck, and people are abandoned on a raft. They are starving to death. And uh, there's different reactions. The ones that are closest to you on the left-hand side there are miserable, they're dying, and they have no hope. But in the painting, and you would need to look at it very closely to see this, there's a tiny little ship away in the far horizon and the people at the front of the boat have seen the ship. So the guys at the back are miserable and hopeless, and the ones at the front are. There's hope. There's, there's a ship that, that we're going to be saved. And you know, that's like the world today. There are many who have no vision. All they trust is luck and touch wood and good fortune, hopefully. But they have no vision of that little ship away in the horizon, that hope that we have in God, that God has a plan for our lives and that through his Son, our Savior, he has planned to take us to be with himself forever. This world is not the end. This is not all there is. God has prepared for us a place where there will be no more sorrow or sighing. In other words, Christians will face the same problems as everybody else in the world. We'll face the same frustration, but we're not those without hope. We are not those who feel it's all totally pointless because God has sent his Son to change the world. And he has done such great things that just like those people that see the ship, he has changed our outlook. We do not need to be hopeless. We do not need to feel hopeless because of what the Savior has done. So Nehemiah then is like that. He doesn't feel hopeless because he worships a great God. And he feels that he can approach this God and believe that he can do something about this city 
800 miles away. Nehemiah prays, and there are nine prayers recorded in the book, some of them quite short, but he's a man of prayer. The book opens with prayer about Jerusalem and closes with prayer in Jerusalem. I thought that was rather good. It opens with prayer about Jerusalem, but the last verse is a little prayer that is said in Jerusalem when the prayers have been answered. Praise God, he answers prayer. We need to be thankful that our God doesn't just stay away up there. He comes to you and me to answer our prayers. And so Nehemiah prays. First of all, he acknowledges who God is. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. He, he, he starts off by, you know, addressing God as the God of heaven. That title was used in his day of the king of Persia, who believed he was the incarnation of the sun god. So he was well used to hearing this title, king of heaven, but uh, he applies it to God. He's got a different sense of authority than the Persians had. The king believed he was God, but Nehemiah didn't believe in that authority. You see, understanding authority is an important thing. Pretend you went back to your car tonight and there's a notice on it uh, which says you have committed a, a traffic offence and uh, you need to pay a fixed term notice to the undersigned authority of £50 within three weeks. And the undersigned authority is James McKeown. Uh, would anybody pay it? I didn't think it would work. Uh, but if that same notice had the authority of the, whatever it is these days, the council, the, 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 the police or whatever, signed by the chief constable, for example, would you pay it then? Yes, you would. You see, authority, knowing who's in authority is the important thing. It makes a difference. And so it was with Nehemiah. He served a king who believed he was God but he worshipped a God whom he knew was the King of kings and Lord of lords. He appealed to a higher authority. He refers to God as the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Uh, that word awesome seems to be changing its meaning these days. You hear it mentioned in, in cases that would not really convey what's meant here. You know, I, I, I read recently of a, a Welsh firm that sells perfume, and the title of the firm is Awesome Scents. That's a bit different, isn't it? There's also a chip shop called Awesome Chips. You can get books that tell you you can be totally awesome and you can send a card to your teacher called you are an awesome teacher. So it's a, kind of, it's, it's a word that has kind of lost its, uh, its real meaning. By the way, Joanne, you used it absolutely properly this morning in your prayer. I was listening for that. Uh, uh, so uh, awesome uh, comes from, the, the, the translation awesome here goes back to a Hebrew word uh, which is translated in the King James Version as terrible. 
Well, you know, that doesn't help us much because that word has also changed its meaning. You can have a terrible day, and that's not what's meant. It's a word which means uh, to treat God with proper respect, to fear him in a sense, and it's very often translated that way. It's different. The same version here, the ESV, also translates it as fearing God, being God-fearing. In other words, taking God seriously. You know, people can fear things, and it's not a good thing. You can fear spiders, and it makes you freeze. I remember when I was, uh, Audrey and I were walking in America one year and uh, uh, in a forest area, and we had several little walks planned over the week, and uh, I really wanted to see a bear and take its photograph. Audrey did not. But anyway, day one went past, no bears. Day two, day three, day four, day five. On the last day, as close as Simon here, out from behind a tree, a bear staggered out in front of us, and I had the camera ready. But I never pressed the button. I was frozen with fear, and uh, he ran away. And um, Audrey said, let's go back to, his, to the car. I think his mummy will be looking for him. So, fear can make you freeze, but fear of, fear of God sets you free from all other fears. Acknowledging him, knowing who he is, it's a different sort of fear. It's a, a respect for him, giving him credit for who he is. That is godly fear. That is how Nehemiah came to God, the great and awesome God in the sense of to be respected, the God of power, the God who will punish sin. And he goes on to say that He's the God who keeps covenant. Now, a covenant is an agreement. And he shows steadfast love. Steadfast love is the love associated with the covenant. It's the word chesed in the Bible. A covenant is simply an agreement between two parties. When we say, sale agreed, a covenant has been made. When we say, in a wedding, I will, a covenant is made, and it takes both parties to fulfill the covenant. And so chesed, or steadfast love, is the covenant that God made with his people. And that word chesed can be, it's translated half a dozen different ways, even in the ESV, because it has so many little nuances of meaning that there's no English equivalent. But when God shows chesed to his people, he shows mercy. And he shows faithfulness. Steadfast love in the sense of being merciful to the people that he brought out of Egypt. Faithfulness that he never lets us down. Loyalty and devotion were to be their chesed in response to the covenant. And that's where Israel failed miserably. You know that there's a verse in Hosea which says, Your love... And it's chesed again. Your love is like a morning cloud. It's a rather ironic verse. And it's saying that your steadfast, never-dying love is gone by 11 o'clock. That sort of thing. God showed mercy and faithfulness to them every day. 
they were to respond with their chesed, loyalty and devotion. But they failed. And that was why the exile came. That was why the temple was destroyed. They didn't keep their part of the covenant. And Nehemiah confesses that. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. I confess my sins. Sometimes when, when I was young and listening to the gospel being preached, uh, there, were, there was an understandable emphasis on the fact that Jesus takes your sins away. And sometimes for us young guys, it was, that was stressed in such a way that we got the wrong idea. That once you were saved, it didn't matter how you lived. You know, it didn't matter anymore how you lived. Uh, but... Uh, uh, that's not biblical teaching. There's, the idea was that, uh, you know, to give you an illustration, of, there was a, a, a chap once that passed me in the 30-mile limit doing 60, and I said to him, you know, as a Christian, do you think that was a good example? And he said, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. And that was how people thought, you can do what you like. And I said, well, tell that to the policeman. You know, but uh, God always takes sin seriously. And so it was important uh, for that. We, we, live in a, we live in a world that doesn't even call sin, sin anymore. We live in a world that doesn't take sin seriously. When I was in the factory and was going into the work study office where you had a lot of uh, rules to follow, the manager said to me, you know, you, 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 there's many different ways to do this job, but you choose the way you do it, and you're only wrong if you get caught. You're only wrong if you get caught. Isn't that the way people think of sin? If you can get away with it, it's all right. But Nehemiah took sin seriously, and God takes sin seriously. And even when we're saved... You know, I was saved when I was a wee boy of 11. And to be honest with you, a wee boy of 11 can do quite badly. You know, he, he can manage all right with the sin side of it. But I've probably committed more sin after I was saved than before I was saved. And so this is a very precious verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he confesses the sins and he identifies himself with the people and he gives thanks for past blessings. He acknowledges God, he confesses the sins and he gives thanks for past blessings. He recognizes the great history of the people of God. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. And he's quoting Deuteronomy there. God brought Israel out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and great power. And of course, that's a part of what it means to be a Christian. That just as those Israelites were in slavery, so, so are we. We were, in, we were born in slavery to sin. We, we, couldn't, uh, we couldn't stop sinning because that is our nature. 
But when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for that sin, and he is our redeemer. As the hymn puts it, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. So tonight, there's many, many things to be thankful to God for. But above it all is the fact that Jesus died to redeem us, to pay the price of our sins. We should be a grateful, thankful, and blessed people. So he acknowledges who God is. He confesses his sins. He gives thanks for what God has done in the past. But you know, past blessings aren't enough for tonight. It's great that God has blessed us in the past, but the trouble with Israel was that all their best moments with God were all history. And that can, that can actually happen to you as a Christian. All your best moments with God are in the past. But God doesn't want that to be the case. It's very easy just gradually to lose your close walk with him and gradually slide back. It doesn't happen overnight. I don't know anybody that gets up in the morning and says, I'm going to be a backslider. It happens without you even noticing it. But God wants us to continually stay close to him and to remember that we need him every day and in no way to forget the great things that he has done for us, to stay close to him. And then so he um, acknowledges God, he confesses his sin, he's thankful for the past blessings, but he wants blessing for God's people now. And don't we all? Past blessings are not what we want. We want God to bless us tonight in the way we need it. We want God to come into this meeting and to uh, go into all of our hearts and our minds and just to challenge us, just to bless us again, just to give us a, a new sense of the joy of the Lord and what it means to know him, what it means to be going to heaven, what it means to be redeemed. Just once again for that joy to well up in our hearts that will be a blessing for each of us, that God can just get excited about him again. Get excited about the fact that Jesus died for you. Get excited about the fact that we're going to heaven. Get excited about the fact that we're brothers and sisters and we're on the winning side. You know what I mean? We have a lot to be thankful for. I need to keep moving. Um, he Finally, he humbly seeks God's help. He has introduced himself to the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's confessed their sins. He's given thanks for the past. And he says, Lord, we need your help now. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this God, this man. He has got the perspective. He knows that the king is not God. He knows that the king is a dangerous person, but he knows that he's not God. And so he, in a wonderful way, brings prayer that he himself would help to answer.
So as we come towards the end, I want to apply that in a, in a couple of ways very quickly. So God had a great plan for Jerusalem, and Nehemiah learned about that plan from the Word of God. When you read through Nehemiah, he is steeped in the Word of God. So the Word of God showed him clearly that God had a purpose for Jerusalem. He refers to, if you go through Nehemiah, I can give you these references, but if you go through Nehemiah, he refers to things that happen in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and 1 Kings. All of that in the few chapters of Nehemiah. He was steeped in the Word of God. And that's how he knew what God's will was. Because, you see, when we pray, we have to pray in God's will. Then not everybody uh, does pray in God's will. I read some prayers um, that do not look to me to be according to God's will. I looked up the internet for sample prayers, and I found this one. I pray I will win uh, the lottery. This is not somebody praying, give us this day our daily bread. This is not need. This is greed. And uh, that, that certainly is not recommended in God's Word. But there's an awful lot of it on the internet of people praying to win the lottery. And the cheek of it, some of them promise to give 10% back to God if he makes them win the lottery. Uh, not surprisingly, I haven't heard of very many that have actually had that prayer answered because it's not according to uh, God's will. It's not what we read in the Bible. It's not the way Jesus would have taught us to pray. It's not the same as somebody praying for God to help them to find food for the family. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people that want to win 30 million or something like that. So just, you know, it's not give us this day our daily bread as our Lord taught us to pray. It's right to pray for our food. It's right to pray for the money that we need. But not the lottery, I, I, I don't think. Uh, prayers that are not according to God's will might be those prosperity prayers or guilty prayers. I heard somebody praying once, Lord, I know I shouldn't have been driving at that speed. Please don't let me get caught. Or, Lord, the shopping trolley that I had, I didn't keep an eye on it, and when I'd got all my shopping out, it ran down a hill and went into somebody's car. Please may there not be any cameras to spot that I did it. There's a lot of prayers like that around. I don't think that's in the will of God either. That's not confessing your sin. Or revenge prayers. Lord, you know, and you know, this is one that it's very easy to be guilty of. Lord, you know what they did to me. Lord, pay them back. That's a revenge prayer. I think vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Anyway, to move quickly on, when we pray in Jesus' name, we are identifying ourselves as his humble servants. Praying in Jesus' name is not just saying at the end of our prayer, in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's actually praying in a way that Jesus would want us to pray, praying in a way that will be honoring to him. And when we do that, we are assured that God will answer prayer. And then, so that's one application. Our prayers should be according to the word of God and in a way that honors the Lord. And also, prayer helps us to see the world through God's eyes, to get perspective. 
I don't know if any of you have seen it, but there has been an exhibition on the Belfast Hills for the last three weeks or so. It ends tonight, so it's a very bad time to advertise it. But uh, it uh, laid out, this laid out over a 10-kilometer area of the Belfast Hills, all the planets. And um, you can get some idea of it here. Um, so that you could see how the planets looked in comparison to the Earth. Uh, the sun, for example, is massive, about six foot high, if I remember it correctly. The earth is not as big as a golf ball. And the whole idea was to give you perspective. And it also was done to scale, so that every kilometer you walked was 591 million miles. So, and they were, put, they were spaced out in scale. And the idea was to give you a perspective and to say to people, come on, this little tiny earth that we live on, think of what it's like and compared to space. It was meant to give, it wasn't a religious thing, but it was meant to give people a sense of perspective. And prayer gives you a sense of perspective. As Nehemiah came to pray to the, the eternal God, sometimes prayer can just help us to see things from God's point of view. And that's what Nehemiah did. He saw this building of Jerusalem through God's point of view, and as a result, he got up and offered himself to do the job. So, just to finish off, let's have a quick look at the names we have seen tonight and their significance. First of all, Nehemiah, Nahum in Hebrew means to comfort. Uh, actively comfort. Um, you remember that wonderful verse in Isaiah 40? Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. That's the word. And that's what Nehemiah's name means. The Lord brings comfort. Ezra means helper. And together, Ezra helped, Nehemiah prayed, and Nehemiah led, and they built the walls of Jerusalem and made them secure. In a 52 days, I think. Amazing. Anyway, the last name, the name that I want to leave on all of our lips, is Jesus. Jesus means Savior. And that I leave with you tonight is the greatest name of all. Is he your Savior? He has come here tonight by his presence. And if you don't know him and you put your faith in him, then that wonderful name can be such a powerful changing force in your life if you allow Jesus to come into your heart. Jesus means the Savior, the greatest name of all. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your steadfast love, for your faithfulness, and for sending your Son to redeem us, to set us free. Grant that tonight as we leave this place, that that name would bring joy and blessing to our hearts, for it's in his name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Our closing, hymns, our closing hymn is reminding us of God's great faithfulness that never fails. Each morning, uh, a Jewish person is told that the minute they open their eyes, they're supposed to say a wee prayer. And that prayer ends with the phrase, Great is thy faithfulness. And surely we can all say that this evening. 
Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord, unto me. to follow Nehemiah's pattern prayer, I hope you notice that he acknowledged, that's A, he acknowledged God, he confessed sin, A-C, he thanked God, A-C-T, he sought God's help, an act prayer pattern. I forgot to say that. But anyway, let's come now and thank the Lord for being with us. Thank you, Lord, for your help tonight, and we pray that as we leave, that that sweet and powerful name of Jesus would fill our lives and our thoughts. 
until we meet again. Amen.